When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. It is July 4th, 2021. Most of you that will hear those words will know that they are the opening words of the Declaration of Independence. Those words were published 245 years ago today. I think it is safe to say that those of you who live under this Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that followed it, you are grateful for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those of you who live under these founding documents agree that it is self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with such unalienable rights. But imagine if you did not have those rights. Imagine that your people had had those rights, but then those rights were taken from you. They were taken from you when your people were exiled from your homeland to be prisoners and slaves in a distant land. Most of your relatives were killed in the battles that led up to that exile. Your land was destroyed. Your capital was obliterated. Many of your relatives, once exiled, were forced to change their names and to speak in a new language and to worship different gods, often in horrific and many times in immoral ways and to pray to these false gods and to not pray to the God that you previously served. And if they refused to do those things, they were thrown in fiery furnaces or they were cast to hungry beasts. But then that wicked nation that destroyed your nation and enslaved your people was overcome by another nation. And then you and your people were in many respects liberated given the opportunity to return back to your homeland. And some of your people returned, but many of them didn't. They had built lives and homes and families in their land of exile, so they didn't return. And for the next 40 or so years, they just lived lives like most of the rest of the people. They kind of integrated in with the rest of the people, blended in and lived their lives. This is the setting of the book that we are studying through right now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament book of Esther. So you know all of this history. If you've been going along with us through the text, you know a little bit of these things. You've heard some of these stories. You, if you lived at that time, 
you knew all of the, the basis of all the things that had happened in the previous 70 years and the time before that. You knew about your people and their time in Egypt as slaves. And you knew about their deliverance from that bondage and that slavery. You knew about your people and their wanderings in the wilderness and the miraculous ways that they survived when they were wandering in the wilderness. You, you knew about the conquest of the homeland of your people and the establishing of the nation and the early monarchy of your people. Names like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and then Daniel. You, you knew names like these. Those were the ones that you were raised up hearing about and knowing all about. You and your community, a people among other peoples, were freed exiles living your lives as much as possibly in a peaceful way. Until one day, a decree from the king of the place where you live, a decree was read and posted publicly in the marketplace. And the decree said on the 13th day of the 12th month of this year, every one of your people, the Jewish people, is to be destroyed and killed and annihilated throughout all of the provinces of this place, Persia, both young and old, little children and women, in one day they're to be wiped out. And, and you think back to your history as a people. You think back to those names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Saul, and David, and Solomon. You think back to Nebuchadnezzar who took away your people and brought them into Babylon. And for that period of time that you lived as exiles and as slaves in Babylon and then set free by the Persian king Cyrus who came in and then those decades pass and everything seems to be back to a rather good thing. Your people are back in the homeland, you're living your life, but now there is this decree given to destroy, to kill, to annihilate your people. And once again, you're in that, that difficult place and you kind of have to wonder why such hatred? Why such hatred for this people? Why such hatred for this people when they were in Egypt? Why such hatred for this people when they were in the wilderness? Why such hatred for this people when they came into the promised land? Why such hatred for this people when they were carried away captives by the Babylonians in 586 BC? And it's a hatred for these people that isn't just 2,500 years ago or 3,400 years ago, but 80 years ago in Europe or 200 years ago in Russia or in Spain in the 15th century AD, or in Rome in the first and second century AD, or today at this moment, still in the Middle East, this people. Why such hatred for this people? It is a fascinating thing. And it is all the more fascinating to me to consider that this people, the Jewish people, are still a people today. After all of those things that they've gone through for not just centuries, but thousands of years, all the hatred and all the times that there have been people that have come against them to try to destroy them or to carry them away from their land under the Babylonians in the sixth century, under the Romans in the first and second century AD, all these things that have come against them, that they were exiled from their land for 1900 years. And, and even still today, there's so much animosity and hatred. So why such hatred for these people? And yet they're still a people. Why such blessing for these people? If you have been a part of Cross Connection Church for any length of time, then you have probably noticed that I am something of a lover for history. History, it amazes me, especially the histories surrounding the things of the Bible and the people of Scripture. And when you are studying history and you see the world of today through the lens of the history of the Bible, it begins to become clear that there's something more to history than that which is seen on the surface. And that has been one of the points that I have been coming back to, one of the points that myself and Pastors Mark and Pastor Jason have been returning to and driving home through this summer series of we, as we've been going through the Old Testament book of Esther. We keep coming back to this point, that there is something more to history, something more to reality, something more to life than what is just apparent on the surface. So 
when you're looking at all these things and you study the stories of the children of Israel during the time of the Exodus or during the time of the conquest of the land under Joshua or during the time of the judges and all the enemies that would come against them or during the time of the prophets and when the Assyrians would come to try to destroy the children of Israel in the 8th century BC or when the Babylonians would come to try to destroy the Jewish people in the 5th and 6th century BC or what we're looking at here with Persia and this man named Haman, which we'll get to in a moment, you, you have to come and ask the question, why such hatred? But here we are in 2021 and the most free nation in the Middle East is the nation of Israel. The Jewish people are there in a homeland that they returned to after 1900 years separated, dispersed, the diaspora that happened in the second century AD. After 1900 years, they come back to that land and they seem to not just be a hated people, but a blessed people. Why such hatred? Why such blessing? Imagine that you are in Persia in about 473 BC. That's right around the time that these things were taking place. At least that's what we believe when we look at history. It's about 473 BC and you have received word in your small Jewish community that a royal decree has been given from the king of Persia. It's been handed down from the prime minister Haman that you and all of your people are to be destroyed. Why such a hatred? Why can't your people seem to get out from underneath this oppression? Why can't you seem to get ahead in all of these things that are going on? Well, it goes back to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, not Abraham Lincoln. It goes back to the calling of Abraham when he lived not very far from the place that Esther lives in this book that we've been studying through. She was in Susa or Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire. And just about 200 miles away from there was this place called Ur. And Ur was the place that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people where he was from. And he was born in that place about 1500 years before Esther. And when, when Abraham was 75 years old, we are told in Genesis chapter 12, if you have a Bible, you could actually look there, Genesis chapter 12, that God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And that's where we read these words, Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why 4,000 years after Abraham is there still a Jewish people in the world? Why is it that nearly half of the people alive today. There are nearly 8 billion people alive on the planet today, 7.8 billion people around there. Why is it that nearly half of the people alive today look back 4,000 years to Abraham as an important figure for their lives and for their faith? And why is it that there is so much hatred for the people that descended from Abraham? The answer to those questions all of that is found in these three verses in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Why are there a people that have been a blessed people? And in many ways, blessed wherever they have gone, who look back to Abraham thousands of years ago as their father. There is that people because God said to Abraham, you follow me by faith and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Why is it that the name Abraham is so important and great for more than 4.2 billion Jews, Christians, and Muslims all around the world? All of the monotheists of the world look back to Abraham. Why is that? Because God said to Abraham, follow me by faith and I will bless you and I will make your name great. But why is there such hatred? and cursing for this Abraham and for his descendants. 
because God said to Abraham, follow me by faith. And if you do so, I will bless you. You shall be a blessing and in you and from you, all of the families, all the nations and all the people of the earth shall be blessed. Let me clue you into something really important. The blessing of Abraham and the hatred and the cursing of Abraham and his descendants, it isn't about Abraham. It isn't about Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people. It is about the one who would come through and from Abraham. You see, there is something going on behind the scenes. That is one of the things that we see when we are going through a book like Esther, and not just going through a book like Esther, but when we are studying through the scriptures, what the scriptures do is they open our eyes to see that there's something more to reality than what is seen on the surface. There's something more going on behind the scenes in what I would refer to as the unseen realm. It is not about Abraham, this hatred. It's not about his descendants necessarily, the Jewish people. It is about the God of Abraham. And it is about God's working in this world. And it is about the enemy. The enemy of God that is at work opposing the working of God in this world. The blessing of Abraham. It's not, it's not just about Abraham. It's not about Abraham's descendants. It's about the most important descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And the opposition against Abraham is, is actually opposition against the God of Abraham, against the working of God through Abraham in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, who would come many centuries after Abraham, thousands of years after Abraham. So why is there such hatred? As they would say a number of years ago, it's all about Jesus. That's why there is this great hatred of Abraham and of the descendants of Abraham. And that's why there is this opposition to Abraham because God is working through Abraham to bring about Jesus. That's ultimately the basis of all of these things that we're looking at in a story like the book of Esther. But as I said at the end of my message last time, in this battle with God and the devil, the devil always overplays his hand. And you can be absolutely certain about that. As you see these things manifesting in the, in the seen realm of things that are happening in the unseen realm, it's important for us to recognize that there is an opposing force to the working of God in this world. And that enemy, the adversary, the devil, he always overplays his hand. So before I can go any further, I just need to emphasize this. God is at work behind the scenes. This is what I have been coming back to quite a bit as we've been going through the book of Esther. And you need to hold on to this truth that God is at work behind the scenes. And the devil, the adversary working against God, he always overplays his hand. This is so important because there is not a week that goes by right now, especially right now, where I don't get an email or have a conversation with some stressed out Christian that is looking at all of the chaos and the confusion of the world and they are freaked out. Maybe you right now find yourself in a place where you are a little uneasy about the things that are going on. You look at stuff that you keep hearing in the news or listening to on podcasts or seeing in social media and all this stuff is coming at you constantly, especially over the last 18 months or so, and you find yourself stressed and anxious because of the chaos and the confusion of the world. You're a little bit freaked out. It is at times like the ones that we're living through right now that you and I get to find out if we really believe what we say that we believe. I believe it was a great Bible teacher named Warren Wearsby. He passed away recently, but a great Bible teacher named Warren Wearsby, I think it was him who said, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And the Apostle James in the New Testament book of James he writes that the testing of our faith, it produces endurance, patience. And ultimately, through the testing of our faith and the endurance that comes on the other side of it, ultimately, that brings about maturity in my life and in your life as well. So God, he is at work behind the scenes. 
and the devil is opposing the work of God, but the devil always overplays his hand. So in our story that we've been going through, the book of Esther, we're going to be in Esther chapter 7 today. So in the previous six weeks, we've been going through a chapter a week. In our story so far, if you remember back to Esther chapter 1, if you've been following along with us, in Esther chapter 1, we have the fall of Queen Vashti. The story of the book of Esther is about the king of Persia in about that period of the 5th century B.C., and his queen was a queen named Vashti, and Vashti disobeyed the king, and so the king has her removed from her office. That's Esther chapter 1, the fall of Queen Vashti. But then in Esther chapter 2, about four years after the fall of Queen Vashti, we have the rise of Queen Esther, who was secretly a Jewish woman, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And after the rise of Queen Esther in Esther chapter 2, we have the ascent of Haman the Magnificent. And this comes about five years after the rise of Queen Esther. So there's a time gap between Esther chapter 1, the fall of Queen Vashti, about four years passes, the rise of Queen Esther. And then there's a time gap of four or five years, and then you have the ascent of Haman, a new prime minister in the nation or the kingdom of Persia. And his name means Magnificent. And when he was brought up to his new office as the prime minister, all of the people in Persia were told that they had to bow down to Haman, but there was one guy who refuses to bow. His name is Mordecai. And Mordecai just so happens to be the cousin, the older cousin and guardian of Esther before she became queen. And so Mordecai refused to honor Haman. And Haman, he then is filled with wrath. He's filled with anger and hatred, and he wants to destroy Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow to him and honor him. But not only does he want to destroy Mordecai singly, he wants to destroy all of Mordecai's people. So Haman's hatred moves him to develop this plot against Mordecai and all the people, the Jewish people. And then in the midst of that, we see Mordecai's declaration of faith. We saw this just a few weeks ago. So this is the storyline of the book of Esther. Queen Vashti is removed. Queen Esther is raised up. And then Mordecai comes and he, I'm sorry, Haman comes and he's angry at Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow. And he declares that all of the people of the Jews, all of them are going to be destroyed. And in the midst of this, Mordecai is just devastated. And he begins to cry out because of his people, because he's the one to blame for all these things that are coming. And in Esther chapter 4, he sends word to his, his um, cousin, the queen, Esther, to tell her that she needs to do something about this whole situation. And he speaks with faith. Esther chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace anymore than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Let me say that again because it's so important. This is the word of the faith of Mordecai. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was overcome with sadness and distress when he hears about the plot of Haman because really Mordecai was to blame. It was because Mordecai refused to bow before Haman that there is this decree given to wipe out all of the Jewish people, all of his people. And in the realm of humanity and the realm of men, it was Mordecai's refusal to bow down before Haman that brought about the wrath and indignation of Haman. Of course, there's more going on behind the scenes in the unseen realm, where the enemy of God, the devil, was at work to destroy the plan or work of God. The plan or work of God, it's given to us there hundreds of years later, or hundreds of years before in, in Genesis chapter 12. The plan of God was through Abraham was going to come the blessing that would bring a blessing to all peoples. Through Abraham is going to come Jesus. And in the middle between Abraham and Jesus, we have this story in Esther where the devil is trying to destroy the work of God. God is doing something in this world much bigger than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esther, and Mordecai. Much, much bigger. God is working in this world to bring about the redemption of all people through a descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And the enemy, the adversary, the devil, he's trying to destroy that work. That's what we're seeing in this book and in other books in the Old Testament. 
So the devil is at work to destroy the plan and work of God. But in time and space, as these things were happening 24, 2,500 years ago, Haman's wrath was the result of Mordecai's refusal to bow. Now, listen, this is really important. I want you to pay attention. If you kind of have been drifting off as I've been giving you these settings of these things going on here, I want you to pay attention to this. This is really, really important. There are times when when we will have to refuse to follow the dictates of the authorities. That's what Mordecai did 2,400 years ago. The command was given that Mordecai and all the people needed to bow down and honor and effectively worship before Haman. But Mordecai wasn't going to do that because Haman was an enemy of God and God's people. And so he refuses to bow. And there are times when we will have to refuse to follow the dictates of the authorities. And there's been a lot of talk about this lately in our culture because all the things that have been going on in not just our nation, but throughout the world in the last 16, 18 months because of COVID. And you remember all the shutdowns and praise God, we're not in the midst of shutdowns right now and we're not wearing masks. We, we've been liberated from all of those things. We're, we're gathering together here at Cross Connection for church services. We've been doing that together for a while now. If you've only been watching online and you live here in North San Diego County, we wanna invite you to come out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 in the morning. If you're watching this, on Sunday morning, you still have time to make your plans to come here and join with us on Sunday morning. So we've been living under challenging things. And in the midst of the challenging things that have been going on, there has been a call. This is July 4th, Independence Day. There has been a call among many people, whether they're in churches or not in churches, to say, we need to push back against the authorities. So there are times where we find ourselves in the position where we are wondering, is this the time when we need to push back? against the dictates of the authorities, like Haman did 24, 2,500 years ago. I'm sorry, like Mordecai did 24, 2,500 years ago. So there's been a lot of talk about these same things in our culture, but there are four very important things I want you to consider as it relates to what we would call civil disobedience. When, when people say we're no longer going to follow the dictates of the government, like 245 years ago, our forefathers in the United States wrote that Declaration of Independence and shipped it off to King George to let him know that we're not doing that anymore. When do we disobey? That's called civil disobedience. When do we do that? Four really important things I want you to consider about disobedience to civil authorities. First thing, we disobey the authorities when they command us to do what God has forbidden. This is really important. If the civil authorities command us to do something that God forbids us to do, we have the right and really the responsibility to disobey. We disobey the authorities when they command us to do what God has forbidden. That's the first thing. Second thing, we disobey the authorities when they forbid us to do what God has commanded. So just the opposite. So if the governing authorities over us they command us to do what God has forbidden or they forbid us to do what God has commanded, then we have the right and the responsibility to say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're going to obey God more than man. So these are the first two really important things for us to consider when we're talking about civil disobedience, because I know there's been a lot of discussion about civil disobedience in our culture in the last 16 months or so. So the first thing we need to remember is that if the civil governments, the civil authorities, if they command us to do what God has forbidden, we have a right responsibility to say, no, we're not going to do that. Or if they forbid us to do what God has commanded, we have a right responsibility to say, we're not going to do that. But that leads us to the next two really important things. So the third really important thing to think about when you're thinking about civil disobedience is this. We only do this. We only disobey the authorities when we are prepared to suffer the consequence of our actions. We only do so when we are prepared to suffer the consequences of our actions. And then finally, the fourth thing, we only do so when we are prepared to trust God for the outcome. So these four important things require that you be very clear headed about when civil disobedience is valid, when it is something we should engage in. And, and I would suggest to you, and I'm probably going to get some emails and people be upset about this sort of thing. I would suggest to you that if you cannot check off these four boxes, then 
you put yourself under Romans chapter 13, which Romans chapter 13 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And on those last two points, be prepared to suffer the consequences of your actions and trust God for the outcome. I began this message today with the opening words of the Declaration of Independence, which of course was first published 245 years ago today. This is July 4th. The closing words, the final words of the Declaration of Independence, they say this, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection and divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Notice what the Founding Fathers were saying when they signed that Declaration of Independence. They were saying, we are trusting in the divine providence of the Almighty. And we are pledging to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They're saying, we accept we might die for what we're doing because you have to be prepared for the consequences. So in our story, Mordecai and Esther, they could check off these boxes. They, they were not going to do something that was forbidden by God. They were only going to do what was commanded by God. And so Mordecai and Esther, they're in this challenging spot. So Mordecai told Esther that you're not going to be safe in the palace. And Esther responds. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther told Mordecai and all the people that were writing to her, go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan or Susa and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I, we will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, civil disobedience. I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So right there, once again, she is willing to accept the consequences and she is trusting, even though God is not explicitly men mentioned in this passage, she's trusting in the Lord. She's saying, you guys go fast and pray. I'm going to fast and pray. And then I'm going to go in before the king, which is against the law, civil disobedience. And if I perish, I perish. So once again, it's taken me quite a bit to get to the passage where we are for today. Esther goes before the king on behalf of her people in Esther chapter five, which we looked at couple of weeks ago. And she goes before the king on behalf of her people. And as she is before the king, he accepts her into her presence, his presence. And she invites the king and Haman, the guy who is devising the plan to destroy her and all of her people. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet and the king and Haman come to the banquet. So that's where we were last week. Esther has this banquet. And as she's gathered with the king, the king is having this great feast with her and Haman. And the king says, what do you want from me? I know you want something from me more than just to have a little party with me. And so she says, he says, whatever you want, up to half of the kingdom. And so she says, king, I want to invite you to a second banquet. <laughs> so one banquet was not enough. She invites him to another banquet. She knew that King Ahasuerus, he, he liked to party, he liked to drink. In fact, the word for banquet here in this passage is, is just to drink. And so it's kind of like a, a drinking banquet. So he is invited by Esther for her, him and Haman to come to another banquet. And that night after the first banquet, the king could not sleep. That's what we looked at last week in Esther chapter six. That night, the king could not sleep. Esther chapter six, verse one. And Haman, wicked Haman, the magnificent, he was restless also because of his anger and his fury against Mordecai. As, as Haman was leaving the banquet with the king and the king, queen, he goes outside of the king's palace and there's Mordecai and Mordecai will not bow. And so Haman is filled with fury and anger. And he goes home and his friends and his wife say, just kill him, just kill Mordecai. So while Mordecai is unwilling to bow to Haman, Haman is now planning Mordecai's execution. And while Haman is planning Mordecai's execution, the king is being reminded of something that happened years before when Mordecai, this guy who will not bow to Haman, when he, by God's providence, saved the king's life and they never did anything good for Mordecai, for his good deed. And so now the king is planning to honor Mordecai. The very same guy that Haman is planning to kill, the king is planning to honor him. And so Haman comes back to speak with the king about his plan to kill Mordecai and He's interrupted by the king and the king says, what should we do for the man that 
that the king wants to honor. And Haman goes, well, of course, the king would only want to honor me. I'm the only person he'd want to honor. So he kind of plays it up. And then the king says, all right, go and do this for Mordecai. So in Esther chapter 6, instead of executing Mordecai, Haman is required by the king to honor him before all of the people. Because, just as I have been saying, the devil always overplays his hand. And God is working behind the scenes. So even though Haman doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, and Mordecai doesn't understand what's going on behind the scenes, and Esther doesn't understand what's going on the scene, behind the scenes, we have the opportunity to see with the eyes of faith and to understand that God is working behind the scenes in this whole story from Abraham in Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Jesus, a descendant of Abraham in the Gospels. God's working and everything in between Genesis 3 and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God's working in this situation with Mordecai and Haman and Esther and King Ahasuerus. God is working and the devil's trying to oppose the working of God. But the devil always overplays his hand as God is working behind the scenes. And that brings us to... Esther chapter 6, where we were last week, I want to pick it up today in verse 12. We read this. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate after Haman had taken him through the whole kingdom or through the city and honored him before all the people. But Haman hurried back to his house mourning and with his head covered. And when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall, note that word fall there, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall, there it is, you will fall before him. And they were still talking with him when the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared, the second banquet. So now Haman goes home after he has honored Mordecai, which he, he wanted to kill Mordecai, but now he's had to take him before the, all the people in the nation and say, here's the man that God or the king wants to honor. So Haman goes back to his house. He tells everybody what's going on. And they say, you're done. You're toast. And while they're talking with him, the, uh, shall we say, you know, the limousine driver, the chariot driver, the king shows up and says, hey, Haman, it's time to go to that banquet with Esther and the king. And so we read this. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with the queen, with Queen Esther. And on the second day of the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, just as he had said before, what is your petition, Queen Esther? What is it that you want? I know you don't want to just have a meal with me and Haman. So what do you really want? Obviously, you're setting me up for your request. So what is your request? What is your petition, Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request up to half of the kingdom? I'll give you whatever you want. It shall be done for you. And then the queen, this is spectacular. Verse three, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, which if you go back to the very beginning when Esther was selected in Esther chapter two, it says that she found grace and favor in the eyes of the king when he first selected her to be his queen. So she says, if you have found favor, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Those are the exact words of the decree that Haman had developed to kill the Jewish people, to kill Mordecai and all of his people, the Jewish people. So my people, it has been decreed to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. She says, if it, if it was just that we were going to be put back into slavery, which we've been liberated from when Cyrus, king of Persia, delivered the Jewish people from the Babylonians, if we were just to be sold back into slavery, she said, I would have kept my mouth shut. But we're not going to be sold back into slavery. We're going to be destroyed, annihilated, killed, and destroyed. If it had just been slavery, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And so Haman was terrified before the king. Some more things to think about. And in all of this amazing story, as, I mean, imagine the picture. It's an amazing thing going on here. It's just the king, the queen, and Haman. And the queen is treating Haman and the king to this, this huge spread, this banquet. 
And in the midst of it, the king says, all right, listen, Esther, I know you have a bigger request than just that we come have dinner with you. And so what is it? Well, here's my request. I, I petition you, I request that you save my life and save the lives of my, my people because we have been sold to be put to death, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. The king says, what, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Who, who has sold you to be killed? She says, this wicked Haman. So some things to think about in this. First thing to think about, God is working even when I think he's inactive. This is so important. And I think in all the things that we find ourselves going through right now, and there's a lot of anxiety and stress. I know that this last year, year and a half, has been a chaotic time, challenging time. And we've been through a lot of ups and downs. And even though things have been challenging for a lot of people I know within the church, it's been relatively okay, but there's still this weight of anxiety and concern about, you know, you look around the politics of the world, you look around the health of the world, you look about around injustices maybe, or whatever it may be, inequities, unfairness, all these kind of things that people are constantly talking about. And you can feel the burden. You can feel the weight. You can feel the anxiety of all these things. And in that, I want to remind you, especially if you are a believer in the God of the Bible, God is working even when I think he's inactive. And in the story of Esther, that's one of the things we see. Second thing we see is that God is working, but there is an enemy working against him. I, I think that one of the things we fail to recognize sometimes is that there is a very real foe, a very real enemy of God. Now, this foe, this enemy of God, is not the equal opposite of God. He's not equal in power. He's not equal in intelligence. He's not equal in resources. He's not equal in any way to God. He, this devil, is a created being as you begin to see him revealed in the scriptures. But there is an opposing force to the working of God at work in this world. You can see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through all the 66 books of the Bible. There is an enemy that is working against God. God is working, even when I don't think he's active. And God is working, but there is an enemy working against him. Third thing that I think is really important as we read through Esther chapter 7 today. God is working, but Esther still had to put herself on the line. You see, this is really important because when we get into the discussion, and this is one of the discussions that Christians have a lot of times, it's the question about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and the responsibility of man. And Christians like to divide themselves into two different groups. Those who believe in the sovereignty of God and really kind of lean upon the sovereignty of God and those who lean towards the free will or the responsibility of man. And one of the things that you find when you read through the scriptures is that both of these things are true. They're, they're not set aside as one thing is better than the other. God is working. God's providence, God's sovereignty, we see him working. It wasn't Esther that made it so that the king could not sleep that night. It wasn't Esther that made it so that it just so happened that when the king couldn't sleep, that they would read him the story about Mordecai saving his life. That's the providence of God. That's the working of God. God is providentially working in the world. We see that when we open the pages of scripture. So God is working, but Esther still had to put herself on the line. She still had to fast. She still had to pray. She still had to go before the king when it was against the law for her to do so. She still had to set up this banquet. She still had to petition the king for herself and for the people of her time. So this is really important for us to remember. God is working even when we think he's not, even when it seems like he's inactive. God is working, but there's an enemy that's working against him. And God is working, but he still has something for you to do. And this is really important because a lot of times we want to just say, well, God will work it out. God will sort it out. But sometimes God's saying, no, I have something that I want you to do in this situation, which is a challenge. And one of those things that I want to ask you, have you considered that maybe God has something that he wants you to be doing right now that you're not doing? Something to think about. You can trust that God will work his plan. His plan will come about. But God wants you to be involved in that. So going on, Esther chapter 7, verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath, and he went from the banquet of wine, and he went out into the palace garden. So the king hears this. Esther says to the king, I want you to save me and my people, because we have been decreed that we're going to be put to death, and we're going to be annihilated. And he says, well, who, who possibly would have done this? I, I don't know what you're talking about. She says, it was Haman. Haman did this. The king is so angry. <laughs> he can't even stay there. He gets up, he leaves the room. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, we read, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So the king gets up, 
He is filled with wrath. He leaves the room. And Haman, Haman realizes he's cooked. He's done. And so now he's, he's like on the ground pleading before Queen Esther, please save me. This pitiful Haman the Magnificent. All of a sudden he's seen for what he really is. And now he's pleading with the king. And when the king returned, verse 8, from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen. Remember what his friends said. They said, if you have begun to fall before Mordecai, you will fall. Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Now, this is like beautiful irony. It's comedy in the midst of tragedy, tragedy for Haman. So here's Haman who through the whole story has been pompous and arrogant and thinking himself magnificent. And he's got this high handed plan to destroy Mordecai. And now his plan is falling apart. Why? Because the devil always overplays his hand and God will accomplish his work. And so now the king leaves the room and he is seething. He's fuming with all kinds of wrath. Haman starts crying out, please save me, Queen Esther. And he falls on her. She's kind of reclining upon a couch. That's at least the picture that we have in this passage. He falls on her right as the king is coming in. And this doesn't look so good that he's fallen upon Esther right at this moment. And then the king said, the scriptures say, will he assault, also assault the queen while I am in the house? And at that word, as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's faith. It's as if the king comes back in the room with some of his executioners, shall we say. So as the words are leaving his mouth, they covered Haman's face. And now Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman has made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, Hang him, hang Haman on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. God is working, even when we think he's inactive. God is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther. But as we see the fall of Vashti and the rise of Esther, as we see the ascent of Haman the Magnificent, and the refusal of Mordecai to bow before Haman, and then Haman's plan to destroy Mordecai and all of the people of the Jewish, the Jewish people. In all of these things, the king couldn't sleep. They just so happened to read to him how that Mordecai had saved his life. All of these things, God is working, even when we think that he's inactive. And here is the interesting thing, because with the death of Haman, on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. He, he ends up being killed on the very same thing that he had created to execute Mordecai. With the death of Haman here at the end of Esther chapter 7, you might think that the story is done, but you'll notice if you look just a couple pages to the right, you're going to notice that we still have three chapters left, which lead us to one more very important thing for us to think about. And all this what we've seen so far this morning, one very important thing. God is at work, but there's still much for us to do. There's still much for us to do. You see, hundreds of years after Esther would come the blessing of Abraham to this world. The blessing of Abraham, Genesis chapter 3, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing of Abraham is Jesus. God was bringing about the ultimate incarnation, God coming to the world, Jesus coming to this world. And, and all this stuff between Genesis chapter 3 and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even the story of Esther, that's all a part of that story. That's why the enemy is coming against the working of God through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. But Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The story is told to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he was crucified. Again, that would seem like an end to the story. He even says on the cross, it is finished. But why, if it is finished, are we still here 2,000 years after Jesus? Because God is at work but there's still much for us to do. But to see the conclusion of the story, you'll have to join with us next time. But as I close today, I want to give you a few final things to think about as we kind of wrap this up and as we're seeing this story. There's a reason why I believe God led us to the book of Esther this summer to study through. So some things for us to kind of just be thinking about as we wrap up today. There's a lot of chaos and confusion in our broken and fallen world all the time, but especially it's been especially noticeable for us in the last year. There's a lot of chaos and confusion in our broken and fallen world. And the chaos and confusion, it can weigh on us and stress us out. 
And in the midst of the chaos and confusion, with all of the anxiety and stress, I hear sirens going by, there's more chaos and confusion. But in the midst of all the chaos and confusion, with all the anxiety and stress, we need to take a step back. And we need to ask ourselves in the midst of all this, do I really believe what I say I believe? Do you really believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him? That's what we read when we talk about faith in the New Testament book of Hebrews, that God is and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you really believe that God is? And do you really believe that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? That's what the life of faith is all about. And the book of Esther is just another reminder that God is working even when we don't see his plan clearly. So stepping back from all of the things that are stressing you out and causing you anxiety right now, you have to step back and go, do I really believe that God is? Do I really believe that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? And if I really believe that God is, then we begin to understand that God has something he's doing bigger than the things that I'm experiencing right now. And as you start to get to know God as he is revealed in the scriptures, you start to realize that in the end, he wins. So it doesn't matter. I, I was talking with a friend this week and he said this to me. It doesn't matter what the score is in the third quarter if you know the conclusion of the game that you win. Even if you're down in the third quarter, it doesn't matter. If you know the end, if you know the, the final score and you know that you win in the end, it doesn't matter what the score is in the third quarter because you know that you win in the end. And when Jesus said on the cross 2,000 years ago, it is finished. He's, he's speaking about future history that has not yet come to pass. So if you know that in the end, Christ wins, then all the things that are going on around us, we can, they, they still will cause anxiety and stress, but we can kind of roll those things over to the Lord and say, God, I know that you're working. Even though the enemy, the adversary, the devil is coming against your work, I know that you're working. And I know that in the end you win. So the question is, if you believe that God is working and that he's going to win in the end, the question is, what part does he have for you to play? And that's a really important thing for us to think about this week. What part does God want you to be a part of today and this week in his working because it just may be that you are where you are in the house that you live, in the neighborhood that you live, in the workplace that you work at, on the construction site or the classroom or wherever you find yourself. It just may be that God has placed you there for such a time as this. And so the question is, are you fulfilling the purpose for which God has placed you in that place? And that's the place where you need to say, God, help me to see what, is it, what it is that you want me to do. Father God, I pray as we close today on this Independence Day, that you would help us to be in that place, that right space, mind space really, to come before you with our anxieties, our concerns, our fears, and to cast our cares upon you, trusting that you do care for us. And then in that place to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? And maybe that might require, just like with Esther and the Jewish people in this passage of scripture, they took a few days to pause and to pray, to fast. Maybe that's what we need to do this week, to pause and to pray. Maybe it's not three days. Maybe it's just an afternoon to pray. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Because it just may be that you've placed me here for such a time as this. God, help us to have the faith enough to see that you're working and to trust in your working and to step into the work that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.